Every one of us here today has something that we live for. Maybe you live for yourself. Maybe you live for getting whatever you want when you want it. Maybe you live to please somebody else. Maybe you live to please your spouse. Maybe you live to please your parents. Maybe you live to please a close friend or a boss. Maybe you live for comfort. You're just trying to have as easy a life as you can, as comfortable a life as you can, free from suffering, free from pain, free from difficulty, free from guilt. Maybe you live for the approval and the admiration of others. Maybe that's what you really want, and maybe just about everything you do is trying to get that from other people. Maybe you live for the Lord. And maybe you've come to know him and you've come to love him. And all you want to do is please him. That's not to say you do it perfectly. It's not to say that you do it even well. But at the bottom of your heart, you truly want to please God. You love Him. You know that you are a sinner that has been saved by His grace, that you would be lost without Him. You feel a sense of indebtedness to Him. And so you look to organize your entire life around Him around coming and worshiping him with his people every week, about loving and serving others as in the same way that you would love yourself, about reading his word, getting to know him more, praying, talking to him because you're desperate to, you need to, you want to. You sing to him because you're so filled with joy and happiness at what he's done for you. Your life really revolves around him. It doesn't revolve around anyone else. It doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around him. And I don't know which of those you fall into. I mean, really, only you know and God knows. Some of you I know pretty well and can make an educated guess you could fool me. You could fool anyone. You could even fool yourself. But you know and God knows. And we also know that one day you're going to face God. And that will either be an awesome day or it will be a terrifying day. One day, guaranteed, you will meet God face to face. And you have no idea when that day is going to come. 
one of two things will happen. Jesus, as promised, will return. And he will break through the clouds. And we will all, all of a sudden, see him. And it will be over. Or that body of yours is going to quit. You're going to die. And when you do, your soul will be separated from your body and you will go straight to meet God. Are you ready for that day? The most foolish of fools puts that off. Assumes that it's a long way off. Assumes that I've got plenty of time to worry about that. I have plenty of time to figure that out. And especially young people. especially young people. I'm not including myself in that category, by the way. I have stopped. I'm no longer a young person. Young at heart, whatever that means. I'm young at heart, but I'm not a young person. I am totally aware that that day, that end, is coming, and it could be any day now. But I remember, don't you who aren't young anymore, don't you remember feeling invincible? Don't you remember feeling that there wasn't some clock ticking, but that you just had time and time and time? Don't you remember those days when you were more likely to just do whatever you wanted to do whenever you wanted to do it and put off things of real importance and live in the moment and this and that? I remember those days like they were yesterday. So those of you who are young, Know that this is especially important for you to think about right now. Even you don't know how many more days or hours you have in this life. You could meet God today. You could meet God this week. Are you ready? Every single one of us, that day will come and we will meet God and you will either receive judgment or mercy. One or the other. On that day, you will not be able to make your case. It will have been decided. On that day, you will not be able to plead on that day you will not be able to say anything in your defense it will be over the fourth quarter zero colon zero zero no more time no more words no more actions And based on what you did, 
with the gracious time that God gave you, like these moments right now, you will either be shown judgment or mercy. Are you ready? We're continuing our series on the book of the Twelve, which is how these last 12 books of the Old Testament would have been known to Jesus. He hadn't heard this term, minor prophets. Augustine coined that term in the 5th century, and by minor, he didn't mean less significant. He meant shorter. So if you take all 12 of these minor prophets and put them together, they're about the length of one of the five major prophets. And each of these books that we've been studying was written by a prophet. We don't have prophets anymore, but they would have been written by a prophet who would have been preaching the message that God gave him to God's people at some point over a period of about 300 years. Every single one of them was ministering at some point between roughly 750 B.C. and 4. 50 BC. And over those 300 years, God's people were in this cycle. It was this cycle of disobedience. And then God would discipline them. And then God would deliver them. And then they, for a season, would rejoice and love Him and worship Him. And then go back to disobedience again. And it's been building and building and building. And when these prophets were writing, that disobedience was just spiraling down, down, down. So at this point, when Zephaniah writes, who we're going to be looking at today, by this point, God had severely disciplined his northern kingdom, Israel, in the north, about a hundred years before Zephaniah writes, and God was about to send his discipline to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Zephaniah, he's speaking to them, he's writing to them. So just a couple more things before I pray, I want to introduce you to the man and his message. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to the man, and this is the longest genealogy of all the minor prophets. It's not super long, but it's the longest of all the minor prophets. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Hezekiah, who was one of the greatest kings Judah ever had. Hezekiah was Zephaniah's great, great grandfather. That's a really big deal. That'd be like somebody today saying that they were a descendant of Abraham Lincoln. And Hezekiah, who was one of the best kings, he reigned for 29 years. 
And then he was replaced by Manasseh, who was probably the worst king Judah ever had. And he reigned for 55 years. And then he was replaced by Ammon, who ruled for two years and was no better than Manasseh. And then came Josiah. Josiah was the last good king over Judah. And it is during the reign of Josiah that this great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, Zephaniah, is preaching. When it comes to his message, it's very straightforward. Sometimes these messages are complicated, aren't they? Sometimes they're difficult to understand and unpack. Not Zephaniah's message. It is really straightforward. He is looking forward to the day of the Lord. Not a day. He's looking forward to the day of the Lord. And so you're going to see that term used over and over again. Amos used it. Joel used it. And Zephaniah uses it. And here's what it refers to. The day of the Lord refers to a day when God visits people in judgment, salvation, or both. A big day, a great day, when God comes and he visits people in judgment or salvation or both. So the day of the Lord, it is either a terrifying day or an awesome day, depending on whether or not you are at peace with God. Whether or not you are at peace with God, when the day of the Lord comes, that determines whether it will be a day of disaster for you or a day of deliverance whether it will be a day of delight or a day of dread. So Zephaniah is looking out at the people of Judah, and he is telling them the day of the Lord was coming. And he meant that soon, like just around the corner. We're talking within 50 years. Soon, just around the corner, Things are going to get really, really bad. We can all understand that. No matter how old you are. Zephaniah said, the day of the Lord is coming. Soon, just around the corner, things are going to get really, really bad. Then, down the road, things are going to get really, really good. That's his message. The day of the Lord is coming, and he's talking about two different days, we'll see. A day of judgment was coming, and then a day of mercy. For us, there is also a day of the Lord in our future. Do you know this? There is a day of the Lord in the future. This is the day we need to be ready for. There are days of 
judgment and mercy in the past, and there is a great day, the return of Christ, when he comes back. There is a great day of judgment and mercy in the future. And on that day, God's enemies will receive judgment. And God's people will receive mercy. So as you read with me this morning, you will see there is a sense in which what Zephaniah is talking about has already happened. And there is a sense in which what Zephaniah talks about has not happened yet. And so the instruction that he gives to the people of Judah, looking forward to the day of the Lord, is also good instruction for us who are also looking forward to the day of the Lord. When Jesus returns, and we will all either be shown judgment or mercy. Let's pray together first. Our Father in heaven, will you open our minds and our hearts to hear and receive your word so that we would know you and love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Zephaniah. If you are using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 740. This little book can be divided into two parts. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. There's two parts. The first part spans chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 3, verse 8. And it describes the imminent judgment of Judah and the surrounding nations. The right around the corner judgment of Judah and the surrounding nations. Part two, which finishes the book, is chapter three, verses nine through 20. And it describes the eventual restoration or rescue of Judah. The eventual down the road restoration of Judah. So let's begin with part one. This is the imminent judgment of Judah and the surrounding nations. Let me begin by reading to you a quote from Kenneth Jones that I think will be helpful as we read these verses to pull out what God has for us. He wrote, prophecy, we're going to be reading prophecy. Prophecy is not God's crystal ball given to curious men. It is the proclamation of God's sovereign, gracious will, that is what God was going to do, for all creation and his call, that is what his people must do, to covenantal fidelity to the people who are called by his name. So in prophecy, there is a will and there is a call. And this is no exception. We're going to read God's will. In other words, this is what God was going to do. But we're also going to read his call, and that is what God wanted Judah to do. So let's start reading through this. Let me begin in verse 2. Here is the approaching judgment of Judah. 
I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. When I read those verses, they sounded familiar to me. When I read those verses, I thought I could have been reading Genesis chapter 6 before the flood. Zephaniah uses hyperbole. He uses exaggeration. God was not obviously going to wipe everybody off the face of the earth, but he's getting the point across, isn't he? God's judgment was going to be really severe. That kind of language hadn't been used since Genesis chapter 6. Here's something to note. A lot of these minor prophets describe the judgment and mercy of God, don't they? Most of them describe the judgment and mercy of God. Zephaniah probably paints the darkest picture of God's judgment, but also we'll see the brightest picture of God's rescue. But right now he's speaking about the judgment that was coming. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests among, along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent before the Lord God for the, and here's our phrase, the day of the Lord, that is the day of his judgment, is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Verse 8, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, wail. O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. There were those in that day that said, God's indifferent. God is idle. Many believe this today, or live as if they did. Verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This judgment 
that God speaks of here would be fulfilled in just one generation. Zephaniah writes around 630 B.C. and by 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So the day of Judah's judgment was coming. Also, the day of our judgment is coming. There is a day of the Lord. A day when you and I will face God. And on that day, as Zephaniah wrote, neither your silver nor your gold will be able to deliver you. Are you ready? Also, a day of judgment was coming for the surrounding nations. And this is specifically in chapter 2, 1 through 3, 8. So again, this first part is this coming judgment of Judah and their neighbors. I'm not going to read all these verses. Let me just read enough so that you get the gist of what God was going to do. Verse 4 of chapter 2. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Look at verse 8. How severe will this be? I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revelings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Verse 13, He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert, and on and on. Look at chapter 3. Skip down to verse 6. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So that is, that summarizes in those verses God's will. God was going to judge Judah and the surrounding nations. 
But also, you may have heard in those verses God's call. God's will is what God was going to do. God's call is what God was calling his people to do. And what did God call his people to do? Let's look at two verses. Chapter 1, verse 7. You'll see an instruction. Chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. You see God's call. You see his instruction as they anticipate the day of the Lord. Be silent before the Lord God. If you were here last week, we saw this in Habakkuk. He said the very same thing. In chapter 2, verse 20, he wrote, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What did that mean? Things were about to get really, really bad. And the instruction is, bear the providence of God, bear under whatever God brings your way. And the way Calvin described it, which I appreciated, was to bear it with a calm and resigned mind. To be silent before God, to hush before God. I'm not going to grumble when things don't go well and don't go my way. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to be silent before God to bear under it with a calm and resigned mind because I know that God is good and I know that he cares for me. So I can bear under anything and everything he in his good pleasure, might bring my way. So Zephaniah says, rest. You, no matter what happens, Christian, you can rest. You can have peace, deep, abiding, no matter what rest. God is in control. These days are from him. He is good. He knows what is best, and he will do it. So rest. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. There's another call, another instruction. Beginning in 2, verse 1, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. This sounds to me like repentance. Repent. It's about to get really bad. A day of judgment is coming. Gather together, 
turn from your wicked ways. Stop following the ways of this world. Stop loving the ways of this world. Start following me. Start trusting me. Start worshiping me, God says, before, over and over, he says, before it's too late. It's the same for us, isn't it? Turn to God if you haven't already. Repent and turn from your sin. Stop living for yourself and living for God if you haven't already. Before, as Zephaniah says, it's too late. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So you see, in a sense, this day that Zephaniah was talking about has come and gone. The day when Babylon marched in and destroyed Jerusalem. That day has come and gone. But in another sense, the day of the Lord is still approaching. And God's call to us to turn and to repent still stands. In a sense, many of us would say that though most of us are pretty well insulated from the pain and suffering of it all, we are under God's judgment now. We are as a people. As a nation, it would seem very clearly under God's judgment right now in that it's undeniable that God is handing us over to our sin. That we may learn to turn back to him. Will you? Will we? What will you do? How will you live? Will you seek God? Will you love him? Will you serve him and be delivered? Or will you do what so many professing Christians are good at? Let's just be honest. Will you do what so many of us are good at, and that is to pay lip service only while withholding our heart from God and then be destroyed by him, not delivered? There's a great warning here from Zephaniah. We could go to the New Testament to places like Matthew chapter 7 and be reminded that a lot of people on that day of the Lord are going to be surprised. But I did this, and I said this, and I led this ministry, and look at how I served this person, and people like me, and I did really good things. And Jesus will say to many of those people, go away from me, I never knew you. Because so many of us know how to pay lip service. Oh, I love God. I believe in God. I trust God. While our hearts are far from him. 
Don't be surprised. Deal with your heart today. Part two. This is chapter three, verses nine through 20. This is the eventual down the road restoration of Judah. Yeah, it was going to get really bad, but then it was going to get really good. And this is described in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 3. Look at it with me. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day, this is another day, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So again, this day was coming. There was a near fulfillment and also a far-off fulfillment. There was a sense in which this is describing those people who after 70 years of exile would return under men like Ezra and Nehemiah. We can read about this and they would begin to rebuild this city of Jerusalem. It is also speaking about those people who are like you and me, the church of God, the redeemed who have been transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit. And there is a sense in which it is describing that day in the future when all of God's people will be gathered together in the new heavens and the new earth. So this day of the Lord is coming. This great day is coming. That is God's will. It is what God was going to do. But just like in the first part of his message, not only is God's will here, but also God's call. When restored, when redeemed, what should the people of God do? Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice. And exult with all your heart, O daughter of Zion. Of Jerusalem. What must they do? Those who had been restored. What must we do, Christians who have been redeemed? Rejoice. Rejoice in God. Why? And here it is, the end of the book, verses 15 through 20. This is the brightest picture of God rescuing his people in all the minor prophets, in my humble opinion. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. 
the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Pause. I wonder if you've ever caught this or seen this in Scripture. As we are rejoicing and singing to God, God is singing over us. As we take all our pleasure in God, God is taking his pleasure in his people. Singing to one another, if you will. Verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Which concludes this little book where Zephaniah looks forward to the day of the Lord, which was coming for God's people. A day of God's judgment, also a day of God's mercy. In conclusion, the day of the Lord is coming. It may be upon us. The day of the Lord is coming. Will that be a day of disaster for you or a day of deliverance for you? Now, please don't think too long about that. Will that be a day of disaster for you or will that be a day of deliverance for you? And whatever your answer is to that question, let me ask you quite simply, what will you do about that today? Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Or are you not? Have you heard the gospel and believed the gospel and turned from sin and turned from yourself and turned to God? Do you know that you are a sinner who is deserving the wrath of God? Every last one of us. 
that God has created you, He has created me, and He has made us to love Him. He's made us to revolve our lives around Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, to love God, and to hate sin. There will not be in heaven any, not one lover of sin or hater of God. Likewise in hell, there will not be a single lover of God or hater of sin. But which are you today? Do you know that you have sinned against God and that you are deserving of His wrath? Eternal punishment, eternal alienation from Him. Do you know that God sent His Son, Jesus the Christ, to save a people from their sin? Do you know that Jesus came and lived perfectly? He obeyed God's law perfectly. He didn't commit a sin of commission. He didn't commit a sin of omission. And he lived perfectly in the place of those who couldn't and wouldn't, like you and me. And you know that Jesus died. He obviously did not die because he needed to be punished for his sin, because he was without sin. No, 1 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. The reason Jesus hung on that cross and died is that he was punished for the sin of his people. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Really? Do you know that he was then raised from the dead? So God the Father accepted that sacrifice on behalf of his people. Sacrifice accepted. God raised him from the dead. It vindicated Jesus. Proved that everything he said about who he was and what he came to do was absolutely true. Do you hear that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? If you do, if you believe that, then you have turned to God. You've turned from your sin. You sin, but you hate sin. You're not trusting yourself or your good works or your good pedigree or anything for acceptance from God. You are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Or, again, is it just lip service? Are you what the Puritans called a practical atheist? A practical atheist may say all the right words, but in practice, they live as if there was no God. Do you live as if there is no God? Do you live and rely on yourself? And rely on your own wisdom? Do you love yourself and the things of this world more than you love God? Your words would be meaningless if they are not a reflection of your heart. The day of judgment or mercy 
is coming. For those of you who are believers, you are a Christian. Well, what is the instruction that we had here from Zephaniah? Wasn't it that we should rest and repent and rejoice? Couldn't that summarize your life, Christian? It's about all I do at the end of the day. Rest, repent, rejoice. Do you have rest and peace? Have the hard days come, and by the grace of God, you've survived? Do you know that surely more hard days are coming? You may be disciplined by God. He loves you. If there is something you still love more than him, he's likely to hand you over to it. And you're likely to fall. That you may learn that he is everything. That you may learn again that you cannot be trusted. That you may learn again that he is good and worthy of all your love and all your faith. Do you know you may live really well and still be caught up in God's discipline of others, like this remnant in Judah? God may discipline or punish those around you, and you, Christian, may get swept up in those consequences. That's likely happened to you already. It's likely to happen again. Will you be silent before the Lord? Will you rest knowing and trusting that your God is good and he cares for you? Will you repent? When faced with your sin... Will you be proud and arrogant and deny it and excuse it? Or will you mourn over it? Will you feel sorrow over it? Will you confess it? Will you turn from it? Will we be a repentant people? And will we, perhaps above all, will we rejoice? Will we rejoice? Will we praise God? Will we be a people known as miserable or known as joyful? Will we, no matter what, give the honor and glory to God that he deserves? Will we continue to come together every Sunday, no matter how we're feeling, no matter what's going on, and sing every song before us as best we can with full hearts. Will we throughout the week, no matter how we feel, will we open God's word because we know that we need it, because we want to know him more, we want to trust him more and love him more, and 
This is where his truth is found. And will we read his word and thank him and rejoice in him? Will we express that in prayer to him no matter what? Will we talk about his goodness to those in our home, to those around us? Will we rejoice? Will we be a people as we look forward to this day of the Lord who rest, who repent, who rejoice? Let's pray that we do. Our Father in heaven, will you help us? We know that these prophecies that we've been reading, the prophecy in Revelation, that this is not some crystal ball to satisfy our curiosity. There's so much still that's unknown. We don't know exactly how your plan will unfold. We don't know when these different parts of your plan will unfold, but we know that the day of the Lord is approaching. And we know that we will all stand before you and we will either receive judgment or mercy. God, if there are any here today, and I'm sure there are, who need to stop playing games, turn to you and live for you, taking hold of this truth, God, we ask you to open their heart now, open their mind. Give them everything they need by your spirit to love you and trust you. For those of us who are in your care, God, who are in your hand, you've promised never to let us go. No one, even Satan himself, could snatch us out of your hand. But God, would you help us to rest in your will? Would you help us, God, to repent, to walk before you humbly and lowly and broken and contrite? God, would you keep us mindful of your glory that we would be a joyful, rejoicing people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we take communion together, let me read you again from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here we are again, proclaiming the Lord's death, remembering our Lord's death, celebrating our Lord's death. You're invited to take this Lord's Supper with us. If you are a baptized believer, you have turned from sin repented and placed your faith in Christ alone. You have been united to him and his people, so you're committed to this church body or maybe another one if you're visiting that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. If that describes you, we'll have leaders up front. We ask you come forward and take the emblems and then return to your seat and wait so that we can 
take them together as a family. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, now as we respond to your word and obey you by taking this bread and juice together and remembering in this physical, visual way the body and blood of your son Jesus, we pray, God, that you would receive all the glory now in this time and that you would keep our hearts and minds undistracted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.